a place that was once a ruined a place that was once a splendid a place that was once a magnificent that's the cold oh god Circle of Eight in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 81 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we travel back to the beginning of D&D as we discuss the Greyhawk campaign setting. But first, the party finds an actual, undeniable clue in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the sexy beast charms the entire animal kingdom, including Homo sapiens, in the character creation forge. So just a reminder before we get into it, we do have t-shirts up for sale available on tpublic.com. And you can slap that pretty logo on a bunch of other stuff too if you want like a mug. Cell phone case, notebook. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, there's actually some cool things in there too. (laughs) Also, the t-shirts come in a variety of colors, so pick a good one. Uh, Yeah, I think purple and gray are my clubhouse leaders. Yeah, navy looks good, black looks good as well. Black is the only color you wear, right? Pretty much. Because you wear monotone. Well, I'm dour. <laughs> and grayscale. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pixelated. <laughs> All of me. Well, it saves on coloring costs. And pants. <laughs> so, moving on to the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. If you found us looking for Eberron, we finished recapping the Morning Glory campaign in episode 73. But the entire back catalog is available, so feel free to listen through it all just for old time's sake yeah but the dynasty and war to campaign is the uh is a rogue trader game that we played uh using dark heresy second edition rules from fantasy flight games and we are currently in the prologue fast approaching the end as it were well that's good because it was supposed to be a one shot it was and now we're on like this is session four i think yep so where have you been <laughs> in the past few sessions? The garbage planet of Nova Bella. It's a which very idyllic agro world. A terrible backwater with nothing to do and probably full of heretics. Okay, that's true. Uh, since you've gotten there, you've murdered a viceroy, interrogated the planetary governor, investigated the ministerium priests, and finally come to the like main corporation that's sort of in charge of the production on the planet called the Agroharvest Sodality, and their leader, the overseer, Yvane Drakenstein. Yeah, she sent us away, which is weird because we're Inquisitors. I mean, yeah, but you also like showed up in the middle of a shift, and, and she was very clearly the only thing keeping all the, the chaotic work organized. That's true, and in the six hours we've been on the planet, everyone hates us. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you really made us flash. <laughs> So when she sent us away, uh, we remembered, oh, yeah, we have two ninja assassins with us. Maybe they should scout around a little bit. Uh, Snoop around, I think is the word. Sure. Okay. I guess we weren't (laughs) supposed to be looking around. We did because we don't follow any instructions. That's true. And what did you find? Uh, Well, they found a silo full of grain, except that the grain was eating its way through the side of the silo. Yeah. You found a rotting grain silo. And I mean, the silo itself was rotting. (laughs) As well as the grain inside. That doesn't normally happen. Uh, no, but you did ask. I I remember like the assassins were like, wait a minute, is that normal? For this kind of grain? Yeah, is that like right. what happens? Like it just eats through? And it, it was like, no. Well, the silo is gluten intolerant. <laughs> right, <so>. yeah. <laughs> just rolled through that like the Germans through France. <laughs> Twice. The Maginot Corporation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Being as you guys had some experience with the Warhammer 40k setting, you heard Rot and immediately thought, oh, that's Nurgle, the chaos god of pestilence and plague. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. Also, this is not normal, and not normal only happens when chaos is afoot. Typically happens. And the only way to get rid of chaos, of course, is fire. Well, yeah. So, first of all, you tested it, right? Because there are some signs that, that might suggest a little more conclusively than just Oh, yeah, we, aggressive. Had, a, we had a couple bookworms in the party. Fine. Yeah. You had a cog girl, mm-hmm. a, uh, a tech priest who had some uh, attachments. You also had some knowledge of Medicaid, which uh, I guess was loosely affiliated with this. 
And then you also had Cynicians, which tests the warpiness of the the psychic energy that's kind of flowing around the rot. And uh, it failed on all three tests. Yep, super warpy, of course. Right. Uh, so it needed to be purged. And how did you do that? Uh, with fire. You burnt it to the ground. Yes. The whole silo. Mm-hmm. It was full of warp wheat. Actually, I think it was a pair of silos, yes. And, and you did start calling it warp wheat. <laughs> then you went looking for answers. And heads. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we got a nice scene of you guys like in a line marching dramatically across the Debo yard as uh, the workers for the day were clearing out. And you made a beeline for the main office building of the Agri-Harvest Sodality where you intended to find the overseer. Yeah. And what happened? Do you remember that scene in The Three Amigos when, like, they're pretending to have a battle and then, like, El Guapo's guys, like, actually shoot them and then, like, Steve Martin is like, ow, ow, my arm, and then he's looking down, there's blood, and he pulls a bullet out of his arm and he goes, what is this? (laughs) While the guy's standing in front of him with a giant bandolier. Yeah. And it slowly dawns on him that, oh, right, maybe... I should have brought a bigger gun. Mm-hmm. We got attacked. You got attacked. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out when you start burning things down inside the uh, the depot yard, people don't take too kindly. No. We'll find out how unkindly they took it next week. So this week we are talking about Greyhawk, the uh, original campaign setting for D&D. Pretty much the original. Basically, yeah. yeah. So this continues our series of campaign settings in which we uh, sort of hit the highlights, give you a brief overview of the elevator pitch and sort of the the main selling points of why you might want to dig into, learn about, and perhaps play in one of the various campaign settings available for various RPGs. Yeah, we're specifically not giving you the entire in-game history of these settings because, well, <laughs> we really can't do that in 30 minutes. Uh, and also, we don't know it. <laughs> so, like, just our own failings. There are literally thousands of adventure modules for Greyhawk, and we have not yet played all of them. Right. So, Greyhawk is, if you were explaining it to someone who hadn't played it before, it's D&D like it was meant to be played. And I don't mean D&D like it should be played. D&D like the creators thought you would want to play it. Right, because it was certainly the way that they wanted to play it. Yeah, exactly. So the world is a dangerous place, and it's full of those now tropey D&D-type things. Ruined castles, mad kings, xenophobic humans, entire countries ruled by demons that are held at bay only by a few noble kingdoms and, of course, completely ridiculously powerful adventurers. Yeah, they're just running around foiling plots left and right. Yeah, what are we gonna what are we gonna go do today? I don't know. I think there's a ruin over the next hill. Maybe we should just plumb the depths of it and drag treasure out of it. Yeah, see see if any liches left their phylacteries behind. Because they probably did. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Greyhawk is interesting because it's so well documented uh as a piece of history as well. Because mm-hmm. it's kind of the origin of D D. So um let's touch about that briefly, because in some ways I think that's what makes Greyhawk so interesting to me because mm-hmm. in a lot of ways it's kind of a kitchen sink setting and it's you know generic fantasy as we've come to know it now but the way it got created and became that way and became that standard is really interesting as well yeah so this won't be that brief but so if you've played D at all up until this point you've played in greyhawk even if you didn't necessarily know that you were playing in greyhawk because it was pretty much the main campaign setting for all of D from 1972 to 2008 Except for, like, there was some Forgotten Realms and some Dragonlance. Yeah, and uh, was it Points of Light? Was that 4th edition? Is that what they called Nentir Vale? Yeah, I think that was part of it, Because 4th edition was set in the Nentir Vale, but yeah, maybe it was Points of Light. It's very George H.W. Bush. Regardless, uh, you can't strip Greyhawk out of D&D, even though now, you know, we only really talk about Forgotten Realms with 5th edition, Mm -hmm. but you'll still find Morden Kanan's name in the PHB, which means Greyhawk lives. Yeah, it was, like Shane said earlier, basically the first D&D campaign setting. Dave Arneson's Blackmore was technically first, but it ended up getting absorbed by Greyhawk. Um, there's like a country in Greyhawk now called Blackmore. Mm-hmm. And Greyhawk was created by Gygax himself, E. Gary Gygax. It started as just this random series of dungeons when 
D and D wasn't even necessarily created yet, right? Like using the chain, the chainmail system, or other types of like wargaming systems. He and some friends were just building labyrinths full of like monsters and treasure. Yeah, and then you you start having callbacks to other people's work, right? So it was like, oh, you remember that dungeon we did three months ago? Like, oh, I got a little clue that kind of ties it together. Yeah, people would come over to his place and he'd run them through these dungeons, and they got to be so popular that. Eventually, he needed to start coming up with other things for them to do. You know, what happens if we go outside? Oh, crap. Yeah, it's like the the birth of the campaign. (laughs) Also, the death of the campaign. (laughs) So that means that important places and people in Greyhawk, and therefore D&D in general, come from these very early games played in the 70s. So you have Bigby, who has the hand spells, was the apprentice to Morden Kanan, who was... Gygax's favorite character to play. And, and also, like, all of the rhymes with Igby characters. <laughs> Rigby like, yeah, and Gigby. Yeah, like all of Bigby's brothers <laughs> and, and siblings or whatnot. All just created. Yeah. Uh, one of uh, Gygax's friends uh, created a character named Rary, but only played him to third level so that he could call him Medium Rary and then just stopped. He, he abandoned him. Yep. Uh, Gygax's son played a male elf wizard who he just never gave a name to, so they ended up just calling him Melf. Male, male elf. elf, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like uh, Draw Mage, so of Draw Mage's instant summons, kind of a, a long-standing spell, was played by Jim Ward, and that's just Jim Ward backwards. Yeah. Draw Mage. So it was a, a bunch of stuff in, in Greyhawk and, you know, by extension D&D, it's just Gygax's name backward or an anagram. Yeah, exactly. So Gygax didn't actually think people would want to play in someone else's worlds. But, you know, he'd talk about his sort of... Exploits? Yeah, the things that were happening in his games, in uh, his columns for Dragon Magazine. And then he started getting requests for more information about, like, wait, what? what's over here? What, is, what does this look like? Or what are these people like? Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned this proper noun. Now fill in the blank. Yeah. Like, kind of like how Star Wars grew, actually. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I mean, really. There, there's a lot of similarities yeah. between Greyhawk and, and Star Wars. Like, wait, what is canon exactly? Yeah. <laughs> what counts? I don't know. It depends on the writer. And, and it's very much gatekept by very, very angry people. <laughs> Both with large beards. Funny how that works. <laughs> so eventually he expanded it into an actual campaign setting. You know, a, a book where people could like learn about a world and then set their games in that world. And he originally wanted to detail the entire planet, which he had called Earth, O-E-R-T-H. Do you, do you pronounce it Earth? Earth. Earth. Yeah. Apparently, Gygax said it was actually pronounced Oith. Well, that's dumb. <laughs> well, he was such a contrarian sometimes. I think he probably just came up with that just to piss people off. Oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> you like the sound of the name of this planet? Yeah, it's get actually, wrecked. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually terrible. So he wanted to detail the entire planet, which had like four massive continents on it. But he was restricted by the size of the paper that TSR could actually print it on. Yeah, so no one understands scale. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand. It had to be way too small, right? You yeah. You'd be able to see it. He picked a scale. He, he knew the size of the paper, so he did the math, and he realized that he could only really map out the northeastern corner of one continent. So that's what he did. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very Tolkien. Like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so that became uh, Flaness. Mm-hmm. Which is basically Middle Earth, but sort of flipped on the vertical axis. Oh, is that true? The Well, he originally had like mapped it to places in the United States with like Greyhawk as Chicago. Uh, and you can see like there's a, a lake that looks almost exactly like Lake Superior. Oh, interesting. I never, never noticed that. Yeah, and then after, like when he actually like expanded into a campaign setting, he was like, oh wait, people are going to notice that I just put this on a map of America. Yeah. <laughs> redraw, redraw, redraw. <laughs> but you know, you can see like, oh, the, the ocean is on the left. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, sorry. The ocean is on the right instead of a Middle Earth where the ocean is on the left. Great. Yeah. So as has been sort of well documented, eventually Gary Gygax was ousted from TSR. That was in the mid-80s. And he lost the rights to Greyhawk and all of its characters. So Morden Kanan became TSR's property. I, like this story is like, I, I can't imagine losing my absolute favorite character of all time. And and not just like, oh, you can't play him anymore. Like, 
someone else is now going to write their history. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see why he was so pissed. Apart from losing expensive IP and being kicked out, like, that's your character. Mm-hmm. Of course, <laughs> he did kind of get his revenge. He did get to keep one character, Gord the Rogue, who was in a continuing series of novels. And in the finale to that series, Gygax destroys the entire planet. That's how you take your ball and go home. (laughs) So in the meantime, Greyhawk languished for a few years, and TSR focused on the Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance. But a few years later, they revamped it. Uh, Mordenkainen and the other wizards were reimagined as Keepers of the Balance. And maybe you recognize them. Uh, Bigby, Autoluke, Dromige, Tensor... Nistel, Otto, and Rary. It's a lot of dudes. I think they added one woman just so they made one up because they were like, I guess we need one in there. Yeah. yeah. I, I, aren't you missing Rigby? Because I think that's what made <laughs> he was, he was the one Circle of, the, of Eight, right? He was one of the uh, original, I think it's the Citadel of Eight, it might be called. Um, and then these, the, the ones that TSR did after Gygax was gone, Rigby was not on the list. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. Even though the Circle of Eight still had nine people. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> it's so, Morton Kanan, Kanan and, and the Circle, Circle of Eight. Eight. Yeah. <laughs> and this was actually spearheaded by Jim Ward, Dramish himself, who was working at TSR at the time. Two years after that, TSR advanced the storyline uh, 10 years and did some pretty controversial things. They had longtime characters like Lord Robolar and Rary betray the others. And the setting became much darker and then descended into war. Uh, Rob Kuntz, the guy who originally played Robolar all the way back in the day, along with Morgan Kanan, was super pissed about this. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it seems like it had to happen just because that's where the 90s was going, right? Everything had to be edgier and darker yeah. and, you know. It's true. Of course, I would be like, I, I wouldn't do that. I know. You wouldn't do that. I know. Noble Bright becomes Grimdark briefly. <laughs> of course... TSR wasn't run very well by the mid-90s. It's in bankruptcy. Eventually gets bought up by Wizards of the Coast, who decide, hey, let's revamp Greyhawk again in preparation for a third edition. So in prep for that, right near the end of second edition, they advanced the timeline six more years. The continent was no longer engulfed in war and had that sort of old feeling again, adventure instead of, you know, being too dark and brooding. Mm-hmm. And I think at that time it might have been retconned that like it was Robolar's clone of some sort who had betrayed them and not him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not fan service. Yeah. And Tensor was still alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, then third edition comes out and Greyhawk returns to the standard setting, and they produce the Living Greyhawk Gazetteer and basically all of the organized play games for D and D were now part of Greyhawk, and the idea was that it would shape the story of Greyhawk going forward. Yeah, this was basically the precursor to Adventurers League. It was all happening on Greyhawk, and I'm pretty sure, yeah, it was more than a thousand adventures yeah. over the years. Yeah, it was crazy. I did not play in many of them, to be honest, but I did read that book. <laughs> <laughs> then when 4th edition rolled around in 2008, Greyhawk was gone, or at least not focused on. They had the Nentir Veil, which I always thought was kind of lame. Mm-hmm. Never loved it. And now 5th edition is, is Forgotten Realms technically... Like the official campaign setting? Or is it none and then there's a bunch of Forgotten Realms stuff? I think it's the official campaign setting. Mm. But I, I think the distinction is kind of pointless. Yeah. You know? I mean, we don't you... have any, until we get something else. Yeah, until a tree falls in the forest kind of thing. Yeah. So right now, nothing's really happening with Greyhawk, at least not officially. Yeah, other than a few mentions, kind of offhand remarks about names of gods or whatever, you know, alternate ideas from different settings. Right. Where Here's it's always mentioned with Eberron. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the names of the uh, special characters in the names of spells, basically. So you still have the Mordenkainen spells, and you still have Dramagents and Summons, and Big B's. Well, now it's not... Gra- grasping it's, hand, forceful yeah. hand. It's all the same, right? It's like one yeah, hand that has Big different B's uses. Hand. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but other than that, you know, it's just a few names left. But, as we'll see a bit later in the episode, its influences are still prominent. Mm-hmm. So what's an overview of the setting of Greyhawk then? It's basically medieval Europe with fantasy, right? Yeah, it's super vanilla D&D, or at least what we have come to think of as vanilla D&D. It's because that's what Greyhawk was and that's what it became, right? Yeah, yeah. You have kingdoms and duchies that rule much of the continent, but there is a lot of untamed wilderness sprinkled throughout in between them. 
and they, you know, fight for power between themselves. They're often torn by internal conflict, and sometimes they ally with each other to fight off barbarians or orc hordes. When Gygax was coming up with, like, the history and the political boundaries, he was basically relying on a lot of his knowledge of European history. So, like, waves of, like, human invasions and lines of succession and yeah. things like that. Yeah. There is, for players, plenty of political intrigue to be had, although... That's generally on a sort of national scale. There are 50 political entities on the map, ranging from chivalrous Voluna to the Scarlet Brotherhood, who are basically racist Nazis. Uh, well, pro-human Nazis, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, not just pro-human, but like pro-very, very pale white people. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> I guess I got scrubbed a bit by third edition. <laughs> Yeah, then there's uh, Ayas, the demigod who paves the road with skulls. Yeah, he's fun. He was the guy who was responsible for the grim darkness of the 90s. Yeah, I think it was his influence grew too great. And, and that kind of leads into the the whole meta concept of Greyhawk is the balance of power. Mm -hmm. But uh, But his influence grew too great, and that's what cast darkness on the world, right? Yeah. In Greyhawk, the PCs really have an opportunity to be important people in the setting because Mordenkainen and his circle of eight are tasked with preserving the balance, which means that, you know, sometimes they do really good things and, and help you out, but sometimes they release evil demigods into the world. Yeah. It's like they want a constant level of strife just yeah. so they can keep like, make sure it never shifts too far in one direction. Right. Yeah. Like I, if you're always fighting, you're never conquering. Yeah. It's sort of weird that they, they have this true neutral druidic ethos, even though they're all mages. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think any of them are openly evil, are they? No, I think straight up like neutral. Yeah, yeah. Like that that's the whole point, right? Uh-oh, the world will fall into disarray if there's too much good. Yeah. So, let's fix that. <laughs> of course, this means that sometimes the PCs have to become the movers and shakers and they have to become really powerful because there is a massive power discrepancy between average folks and PCs. If you think about traditional D&D, &D, like you start off as like a zero level nobody who like will die to a house cat. That's pretty much everybody in Greyhawk. Yep. Except for the ones who like made it past second level because, you know, most people just die like at the yeah. first trap. <laughs> right. In the Tomb of Horrors. <laughs> oh, come on. No one gets to Tomb of Horrors. <laughs> just stumble across yeah. it. Into it. Well, into the false entrance. Right. And then you die. And then you die in there. Right. Yeah. But the few who actually do make it past, you know, very quickly gain a bunch of gold, which equals XP. Magic items, which are just lying around like crazy. Like picking up seashells on a beach, man. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, what's what's interesting about that arrangement, though, is just that you've got... You can go crazy with your plots of your campaigns. And if you... As we're about to talk about some of the um, adventures that got written, that, that actually happens. But because the Circle of Eight are so powerful and actively trying to maintain the status quo which is constant upheaval, you don't have to worry about the world changing so marked that you don't recognize it anymore. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, like the, the save the world could also end the world as you know it kind of situation. It doesn't really happen in Greyhawk because it's designed not to let you do that. Yeah. You're not really dealing with, you know, NPCs like Elminster walking around fixing or breaking things, really. Yeah. Uh, unless things have already gotten kind of out of whack. So most of the big jobs are up for adventures to handle. Maybe you've heard of a few of them. Against the Giants. Vault of the Drow. Uh, Queen of the Demon Web Pits. The Ghost Tower of Inverness. Or maybe the Temple of Elemental Evil. I heard about that one. Oh, yeah? Uh, they they did a return to the Temple of <laughs> Elemental Evil at one point, too. <laughs> they, they did. They did. And it's basically the basis for Princes of the Apocalypse in yeah, 5e. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the aforementioned Tomb of Horrors. Yeah. Those are all in Greyhawk. Uh, also, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, in case you wanted spaceships in your Greyhawk. <laughs> People say everything has a place in Eberron, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but, like, Greyhawk did it first. No, that's the, the only, like, original D&D &D module I own, because it's so nuts. <laughs> the art is hilarious, too. There's a sense in Greyhawk that ancient evil bides its time, usually, which is why it was weird when Ayuz was like, oh, I'm going to take over the whole continent. You know, usually, like... You have your horrible country where, like, everyone's a slave or mind-controlled. But, like, you just you just do your thing, yeah, right? Yeah. Because you exist so that adventurers can topple you someday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it means that evil is, is often not an active threat, right? 
a Sararak makes a freaking tomb and just sits at the bottom of it waiting for people to show up. Yeah, come at me, bros. Yeah, he doesn't raise an undead army. Right. They're not trying to take over the world at like every moment. So adventurers actually like go out and seek it. It's not weird for you to be like, ah, we are now going to go adventure. Right. Which, in a sort of ironic way, makes it the most video gamey, quote unquote, of campaign settings. You, you mean because the world constantly resets and you can never really affect it? Because those early video games were designed by people who were playing Greyhawk. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, what should video games do? I know. We like go inside a dungeon and steal a bunch of stuff and come back out yeah. and then cash that in for more stuff and then do it again. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's kind of like the old like World of Warcraft like raids. You know, mm-hmm. It's like you could just, any number of groups can go in there and kill that boss. Don't worry about it. Yeah, like canonically the city of greyhawk is prosperous because people travel to the nearby ruined castle and drag out all the golden magic items yeah it's it's just big enough (laughs) and then every once in a while it gets restocked by somebody else you know occupying it yeah it was it was built by a wizard whose name is an anagram of gygax yeah (laughs) (laughs) and he just put a bunch of crap in there why i don't know which actually brings us to some of the themes that you encounter in Greyhawk. And the first one is mysteries abound. There are tons and tons of unanswered questions, partially because, you know, it was one guy making the whole thing up. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, why did this happen? No one knows. Exactly. It's like, I don't know, whatever. It's, <laughs> you'll learn someday. Or like, it was sort of one of the original intentions. Uh, one of the things we like about Eberron is we say like there are specifically gaps and one of the things we don't like about forgotten realms is they sort of fill everything in for you right greyhawk sort of naturally was like i don't don't know you make it up yourself you're supposed to run a game yeah exactly (laughs) uh and then the other thing is there's a ton of history the world is very very old so there's ruins everywhere and there's ancient treasure and magic items and evils and different things living in it so uh you've got a long history like you've got eons to plunder yeah, it's not weird that like that barrow is full of stuff. You know, it, it's sort of like well, whites mostly, <laughs> and swords, and swords, glowing swords. It's sort of like Middle Earth, where of course there's like old stuff lying around, but it's just way more common. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't have to like stumble around for eighty years before you locate a place that was once a magnificent city full of magic items. Yeah, also like Middle Earth, magic is really powerful. You can do pretty much anything with it. And uh, unlike Middle-earth, mages can pretty much do anything, and there's a lot of them. Yeah. You know? Like, canonically, there were two giant nations that were at war, and they totally destroyed each other basically at the same time with magic. Like, to the man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think they also, like, wiped out a few dwarven kingdoms that were just nearby. Yeah, whatever. Whoops. It's uh, collateral damage. (laughs) And because there is so much magic gear, at least in the early days, fighters could keep up because you just had to have the right magic items and you could do basically the same stuff. Yeah, the right magic items and the right henchmen that you have equipped with the right magic items, (laughs) which will almost certainly gain names and thus become historical figures as well. There you go. PCs in their own right. And because Greyhawk is relatively old school, evil is evil. Orcs are the Tolkien variety. You can't really reason with them. They're just sort of like slavering demons, basically. Yeah, like another way to think of it is just that alignment is prescriptive. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're an evil creature, it's you're evil and, and you'll never be anything other than evil because you're evil to your core and that's who you are, you're evil. Yeah, orcs can't be PCs, goblins can't be PCs. There are actual cultists who actually want to destroy the entire world, even though they'll also die. Mm-hmm. And then you've got, you know, lots of like liches and, and other, you know, demigods that are just cackling and crazy and like same kind of plot. I just want to be super powerful and kill everything. Yeah. Yeah. Like there, there's a lot of mush, mustache twirling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Except they don't have facial hair because they don't have faces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it reminds me a lot of Order of the Stick. Yeah. Uh, just the same kind of cackling evil. I mean, I think that is how Gygax in, you know, his novel, his last novel, ended the world, was that they basically, like, released the snarl. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. No spoilers. <laughs> so, as always, uh, we talk about the races in our campaign setting. So, what are some of the key races in Greyhawk? The key race is human. Yeah, you gotta be human. Yeah. It's super human-centric. 
if you read uh, some of the like old like the short Greyhawk folio or you know some of the like slightly newer updates Gygax was really 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 specific about describing in extreme detail the different and the differences between the human ethnic groups like their coloration their customs their history and their alignment he didn't say a person has to have a person of this ethnicity has to have an alignment but it was basically oh you know the Sewell many of them were very evil yeah (laughs) they're lawful evil just get over it (laughs) there's literally a map called regional alignments that just maps out the nine different alignments on the map yeah (laughs) it's right next to the map that shows uh, trading goods in (laughs) in the exact same way right there's a little icon this is lawful evil here Chaotic, neutral here. <laughs> yeah, he was also really obsessed with like describing the mix of each ethnicity within a principality. And this mm-hmm. is just within the humans, right? So it was like, yeah. how many people of this blood are in this area? And, and it was just like, it's kind of funny, but it's like so focused on detail that it kind of gives you a little bit to dig into as well. Yeah, I mean, this is like the first campaign setting that was written, right? So he was basically like recreating a world. Yeah. And he was basing it on Europe. So, you know, the Flemish really care about like exactly how French they are. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, I think similar to the way a lot of Tolkien-inspired fantasy is, races outside of humans are very, very insular. They don't mix. Right. There is like one elven nation that is relatively xenophobic they they don't go out and try to kill other people but they pretty much are like Ugh, we don't want to associate with anyone yeah it's the typical haughty elves yeah. you know it's like oh lowly humans yes we are selene demi humans don't mix much with humans there are a few of these sort of enlightened human nations you know the like chivalrous ones with like good knights on mm-hmm. horses that you know allow them to be around but if you look at sort of the population breakdowns it's like 100,000 humans 1500 halflings yeah (laughs) yeah this is where like the half elf became the like caught between two worlds Mm -hmm. you know the half orc has the unfortunate backstory right Mm -hmm. but in terms of player characters there's human and then dwarves elves gnomes and halflings pretty much everything else is irredeemably evil Mm -hmm. what else could you want Uh, as gygax intended that's right i mean this is where we first got the drow right So there's also a pretty rich pantheon. Like religion is is pretty important because, you know, the gods do have their own sort of plots and their own cultists that uh, enact them. Yeah, and this is actually probably, if you haven't played Greyhawk, this is probably what you're most familiar with because the deities basically got dragged over almost wholesale into third edition. Yeah, the, the pantheon of third edition, but... I, this is where I run into problems with Forgotten Realms because I can't keep track of the two yeah, pantheons. I uh-huh. can't, like, Garl Glittergold. Great. Greyhawk or Forgotten Realms? Yeah, it's t- a dumb name. Mor- I don't know. <laughs> Morden, like, he's in both. But, like, the human pantheon, almost completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, like, yeah, there's some crossover. It's just, ugh. The cross-pollination is, is very confusing. I mean, originally, Greyhawk didn't really list its gods at all. But people asked for them, so... <laughs> Gygax as usual went overboard. Yeah, so you end up like like we mentioned, you have different pantheons by race, mm-hmm. which don't directly interact much, which is weird. Yeah, like they'll have they'll be in charge of the same thing, but like only only for, for humans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, whatever. So that that dumb construct continues through today for mm-hmm. some reason. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so like the humans, you get uh, Nerol and Palor, Elona, Hieronius, Hextor, Cord, like. All these names that just stand out. St. Cuthbert. Mm-hmm. Thar's Dune. Mm-hmm. You also got demigods like Kyogtum, who I guess really loved his own, his ointment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kyus, who turns into worms. And one guy you may have heard of, Vecna. Yeah, that guy. Mm. Mm. He's got a hand, I heard. Uh, One. He has one hand. One hand. And one eye. Yeah. <laughs> die, Vecna, die. <laughs> that was... A crossover specifically meant, like that adventure was a crossover specifically meant to like help revamp things. Yeah. Yeah. Because Vecna, spoiler, Vecna basically takes over the multiverse and then goes after the Lady of Pain in Sigil. Mm-hmm. He doesn't succeed. No. No. 
I also really like, and of course, Gygax had no way of knowing this, but it's very prescient. There's Wastri, the god of bigotry, who's who basically looks like Pepe the Frog. Is that true? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so as we mentioned, you also have the racial gods, so names that you know for sure. Moradin, Corallon, Lolf. Uh, who? Lolf. The, hmm, I, mm, Spider Queen? What? Uh, no, we don't talk about her. Garl Glittergold, as I mentioned before, Yandala, and then the Orcish gods. Of course, everyone knows Grumsh. But it's interesting to note that the gods listed in Greyhawk for the orcs, Grumsh, Bagtru, Ilnaval, Luthic, These all seem Shargas, familiar. I feel Yertris. like we just did an episode about these guys. Yeah, there is exactly the same Orcish god list that shows up in Volo's Guide in 5th edition. Which is Forgotten Realms set, mm-hmm. which explains why they haven't taken over the multiverse yet. They're split between two worlds. <laughs> they just don't have time. It also shows how much Wizards of the Coast is still relying on all of this old Greyhawk material to like spin out into 5th edition. And because 5th happens to be Forgotten Realms focused, it's just sort of being tossed into Forgotten Realms. Yeah, yeah. It's. I, I think it also shows how beloved it is, mm-hmm. right? That, that people are still warm and receptive to these concepts that are 40 years old. So if you are a player or a GM who wants to spend some time in Greyhawk, what could you do? Oh, have you ever wanted to raid a dungeon? (laughs) Let me tell you, boy, there is loot for the taking. (laughs) There's gold in them hills. It's just buried in a dungeon that's trying to kill you. Pretty much every hill. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, so you will never run short of bonkers dungeons to chase down and yeah. challenge yourself with right it's the whole adventuring economy of greyhawk is built upon going into old places and knocking them over yeah like it seems like what happens is you're an adventurer you raid some stuff you get really powerful you become like a mage or a wizard you ascend to godhood or become a lich and then in your insanity or like or, or during boredom over long eons you're like i think i'll make a dungeon right yeah and I'll yeah. fill it with stuff to kind of lure people into it. You yeah, know? this will be hilarious. Yeah, it it makes dungeons kind of more thoughtfully constructed or more at least intentionally constructed mm-hmm. than I think they're really made to be in Forgotten Realms. You know, like I always feel like, why do dungeons exist? This is really dumb. And why do people keep going into them? And are they just filled with the with the loot dropped by people who've already died? Really? Is it, Like what's in the bottom of the dungeon, right? <laughs> but in in Greyhawk, it's more like oh yeah, somebody 100,000 years ago made this place and buried it and you're the first people to stumble upon it because there are a million other places he could have gone. Yeah, the purpose for the dungeon is less, oh, I want to keep something safe and more, I want to test some adventures. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love it when they die. (laughs) It's more, "Mm, that was a Tuesday I made that. (laughs) If you want to get into the meta plot of Greyhawk, then you can always focus on cultists. And there's always cults cropping up that are threatening the balance of O-Earth. So go not, go destroy one. Yeah, all the time, man. For some reason, people love to worship like uh, elemental evil. Yeah, that's an- another thing I don't quite get. I guess it's the promise of power. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Like, whoa, once we destroy the universe, it'll be made anew? Maybe? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe? Yeah. Or maybe just, you know... Things suck in your country. Yep. (laughs) So they literally couldn't be worse. I might as well worship this evil god. Yeah. Medieval peasant. Easy to sway. Yeah. Or you could, once you're a little more powerful, handle an evil empire. Because there are several of them sort of dotted around. They're the remnants of old dying empires, basically kind of like the Romans in late decadence. Yeah. You know, mad king sitting on the throne, interbreeding within the royal line, so you always end up with like a, a crazy heir. Yeah, you get the, the last lashing out of a dying kingdom, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, of course, Ayuz's country. Ayuz. His, his, his empire, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what shall I call this? <laughs> But master, what if you name it after yourself? <laughs> no one will ever get confused. <laughs> it's an excellent idea, Toad Wart. <laughs> you can go handle him. Uh, crazy barbarian tribes. Yeah, orcish hordes. That's always a good one. And, of course, the Scarlet Brotherhood, who are very, very pale and don't like other people who aren't very pale and for some reason live far to the south. Yeah, you know, cause, well, apparently the whole continent is south of the equator. I don't really understand how it works. 
Who knows? The continent, the world is too big to map. It's too big for the paper. Well, right, yeah. So what if you're a GM and you want to start adapting Greyhawk for a fifth edition? Because there isn't any official Greyhawk supplement. Yeah, but it's uh, basically done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you just play fifth edition. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's not a whole lot of special rules in Greyhawk. I mean, you do want to enforce the cultural norms that are kind of established, right? So you, you might want to dig more into not allowing monstrous humanoids as mm-hmm. PCs, right? Like that sort of stuff. But otherwise, any race that's in the PHB is applicable to Greyhawk. Yeah, it's pretty easy to see how like tieflings could be refugees from Ios. Yeah, yeah. And then, to some degree, it's already happening because we've got Tales from the Yawning Portal, which is converting old modules. Mm-hmm. And I think more than half of those are originally from Greyhawk. Yeah, you know, so they're they're basically converting them to Forgotten Realms. Right, just unconvert them exactly, <laughs> which just means changing the names. Basically, That's all you have to do. Um, yeah, and I mean, there's so many old modules. You take any of the third edition modules; they're relatively easy to convert. Like I, I was looking through them and. I don't know that I would even do the math to convert them. Mm-hmm. I would just kind of play them by ear, you know? Yeah, if you take a look at uh, the 5e Adventure Path, Princes of the Apocalypse, at the very beginning, like there's a letter from Merle's that says, hey, we wanted to expand on the Temple of Elemental Evil because if we like just sort of converted it to 5th edition from Greyhawk, we wouldn't really have to do anything. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. we could just leave it as the same. Basically. So we made it into a new storyline. <laughs> And then at the end of it, it has, you know, here's how to adapt for Eberron and blah, blah. And Greyhawk's on there and they're basically, you know, they admit, this is where it's from. Right. <laughs> you should switch some of these things back, but like, this is where it's from. Right, right. So Shane, would you play games set in Greyhawk? I have played a 5th edition game set in Greyhawk. Oh, really? Uh-huh. A 5th edition game? 5th edition game. Oh. Yep. I played it online. Uh, I played a half-orc barbarian, Thrusk. Oh, you had a, a tragic backstory, huh? Uh, I'll, I guess a little bit. I guess it was a three-quarter orc barbarian. But anyway, yeah, so we were set in the Dreadwood. My hero's kind of arc was defending the Dreadwalkers of the Dreadwood from a green dragon who was attacking them. Oh, right. This is the one where you, like, went away and then came back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I ended up missing a bunch of sessions, so we kind of had that interstitial story uh that became like a legend that got back to the other pcs before i returned to the game (laughs) so it was kind of cool yeah i think if you're considering greyhawk this might be a weird recommendation but if you haven't already go read ready player one because i think the sort of way that things happen in the oasis the like virtual reality in that game very much has like a greyhawk feel because of course you know it's sort of based around tomb of horrors in the first place the idea that you know what what do you do well you like put on your armor and like grab your sword and like let's go find a dungeon and Mm -hmm. like dig some stuff out of it and then like have better stuff and then go do it again that's the central conceit yeah greyhawk you're not really out there to save the world once you get powerful enough uh, i mean you can like rewrite the laws of physics so you know you don't need to like overthrow a, a monarchy you can just i don't know make it not exist yeah yeah so, like, you write the storyline after that. Yeah, I think that's very much in keeping with the original Greyhawk was, like, you kind of get to a certain level, and then you write your epilogue, mm-hmm. and your epilogue becomes the future of Greyhawk. And then, of course, they rolled a new campaign. So they dealt mm-hmm. with that with different characters, right? And so right. They, they were constantly creating and retiring characters after they had kind of affected the history. Um, I also think another good place to start is just Wikipedia, because it's pretty well documented on just mainline wikipedia Mm -hmm. um, especially the history and kind of how all this came about so um, you can really get a feel for the flavor and and the intent behind it and and how little intent there was at times Um, and then you just kind of learn about the proper nouns and figure out what your players are most interested in and start a campaign yeah when we talk about old campaign settings you can also get your hands on you know the original books or like pdfs of the books very cheaply Mm mm-hmm and you know they're not that complicated or or in depth honestly like the original folio i think is i think is 32 pages yeah yeah like just read it yeah the the third edition living greyhawk gazetteer is maybe 200 pages it was an old soft cover i remember that yeah and i'm pretty sure it's available as a pdf download got to be on drive through yeah yeah so would you play in a greyhawk game yeah, and, and I have to say that like Greyhawk wasn't a setting that like I think initially appealed to me because there wasn't like 
at least it was told as it was told to me there wasn't like um like a raison d'etre yeah like a, a large event that was happening in the world you know something mm-hmm. to solve or fix or like a backdrop you know there was no last war yeah that's right? well that's kind of the charm of greyhawk yeah <laughs> yeah it's exactly exactly right like things are as they are mm-hmm. do what you will right yeah i think i would i would definitely rather play in a game that was greyhawk rather than forgotten realms if we're mm-hmm. going to really interact in depth with the setting you know like so playing a forgotten realms adventure i'll just play it in forgotten realms whatever but if we're going to like really have a campaign that's built around kind of influencing the world, I would rather do it in Greyhawk than I would in Forgotten Realms. Yeah, there's much less to like smash. Yeah. yeah. And and much fewer ridiculously high level powered things to come undo it all anyway. Yeah. Or if they are, like they're not going to touch it. Yeah. <laughs> all right, do you hear that, Ishan? I think that's uh Ayo's kicking over a pile of skulls. On his way to the bathroom. All right, we're going to need some heroes. Let's move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sends Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. Dot com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Sexy Beast. Now, Ishan, outside of 70s porn, what is the Sexy Beast? This is inspired by friend of the show, Rich Howard. Okay, I said outside of 70s porn. <laughs> well, we've had a few requests for a druid that uses charisma. And it occurred to us that in Wild Shape, you maintain your mental ability scores, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. Yeah, that old mental ability charisma. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So if you have a charisma 20 druid, they become a charisma 20 panther or dinosaur. Sex panther. Yeah. Bang dinosaur. (laughs) Literally. Maybe we should have called this sex panther. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) That's the same charisma as a succubus or a young gold dragon. Mm -hmm. The sleekest of coats. Right. (laughs) What a main, what a main, what a main. 80% of the time, it works every time. (laughs) So the goal of this build is to be able to use a very high charisma as a druid. But, you know, a land druid could just be a person and, like, talk a bunch. So we really want to be able to do it while in beast form. It's kind of a throwback to the old school druid. AD&D 2nd edition required druids to actually have 15 charisma, even though their wisdom only had to be 12. I did not know that. I did not know that either until I was researching this. <laughs> that one seems like a really high multi-class requirement. Yeah. Oh, no, that wasn't a multi-class. It was just, just, just a class. base class yeah. requirement. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah, that seems like a really high requirement. And you had, you had to roll that. Right, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, your fighter was still rolling 1,800. You know, naturally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's cool, man. I rolled it at home. <laughs> I can't play a druid. Yeah, I know. Those are tough, <laughs> tough stats, man. All right, so what's the build? Moon Druid 13. Which is the caster druid or the beast-shaped druid? beast shape. Okay. Lore Bard 5. Great Old One Warlock 1. Okay. Rogue 1. Uh, naturally. Yeah, naturally. I think you, you really buried the lead. <laughs> actually, you really should start Rogue, yeah. actually. <laughs> so, yeah, you'll you'll start Rogue because obviously you get expertise. That's what we're always looking for with Rogue. Uh, it also gives you deck saves, more skills, and then you don't need to get to 13 decks in order to multi-class into yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. So. With, with so many classes, you really need to like watch where you need to put your ability scores. Right. And remember, you're going to spend most of your time in beast form, so that 13 decks doesn't do anything for you. Right. Okay, so you've got your Rogue One out of the way. Now Ooh. what? Well, Moon Druid is kind of an iffy class in general right sometimes it's really amazing and sometimes it's kind of lackluster depending on the kind of forms that you're able to get and and depending on how long you're able to play it because it is super backloaded yeah totally so with 13 levels of moon druid you're going to get beast and elemental forms up to cr4 that means you're going to get all the low level utility forms like a badger which can burrow and creatures that can swim and fly or have really high stealth you know and you can change into things like rats that go unnoticed when their scouts are spies, typically. But you also get big cats, you get an elephant, lots of different dinosaurs like a stegosaurus or an ankylosaurus. 
You can also turn into like lower level elementals like the gargoyle, which has about 50 HP oh. and a 60 foot fly speed. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that gargoyle is an elemental, but right. cool. Right. Also, the Azur, the you know dwarf whose head is on fire. They're yeah. elementals. They don't have a ton of HP, but they get fire and a poison immunity. That's handy. Super handy. When you're not in beast form, you've got up to seventh level spells. And of course, when you're all, you are in beast form, you can burn those slots for HP. You know, seventh level spells as a druid are pretty good. You got a bunch of healing. Mm-hmm. You got some decent evocation spells. Yep. And you've got all those things like, all those utilities like guidance. But yeah, like Shane said, druids are really hard to multi-class since it's so backloaded. You get beast spells at 18, which lets you cast while you're in your wild shape, which is insanely good. And you get infinite wild shapes at level 20. So if you're going to multi-class, you really need to get something that you're not going to get from Druid. And you kind of want to multi-class a little bit more than you would otherwise because just dipping means like you barely missed out on something amazing. Yep. We're also looking for abilities that benefit from charisma and that you can use in animal form. So let's see. You can turn into an animal. You've got high charisma. This is probably going to be a sweet talker or a spy. And we're looking for someone who can really operate as a party face. Mm -hmm. So this brings us to Warlock. We've got one level of Warlock in here, which I don't think we've ever done one level of Warlock. Because level two, you get invocations. Level three, you get a pact. But it's really tough to communicate with your party when you're in beast form because you can't speak. It seems like a slight drawback. Yeah, a little bit. But... A great old one warlock at first level gets Awakened Mind, which means that you can communicate telepathically with any creature within 30 feet of you. You don't need to share a language. Some people say it's one-way communication. Some people say it's two-way. It doesn't really matter because you can talk into someone's brain. And then they can just talk back. Yes, exactly, because you can still understand them just fine. It means you can use your like talky skills like persuasion on NPCs or enemies while you're still in beast form. And, you know, maybe it's a little weird to be spoken to by an animal, but it can also be really helpful. Like, hey, I'm a saber-toothed tiger, and I use intimidate, (laughs) speaking into their mind. Or, for example, deception to convince an NPC that they're insane. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, in a world where druids exist who change shape and also telepathy exists, that's going to take some doing. That's true. But, okay, bear with me. You walk into a church as a human. (laughs) God. Okay. You say I would. Your target is the priest who's actually evil and like undercover, right? You Uh say I want to give confession. They go into their side. You go into your side. You turn into a snake. You speak into their mind as a talking snake. Okay. They freak out. They run outside. Turn back into a human. They say, "Oh God, he's a snake and he's talking." You step outside and you're a person. You say, "What? What are you? What are you talking about? I'm. I don't understand. Are you feeling all right, Father?" Okay, is this your D&D game or your Call of Cthulhu game? It could be both. Okay. (laughs) I'm just saying, talking animals can be very useful and weird. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Oh, infiltrating a a palace? Maybe I will befriend the prince as a talking sparrow. Mm. Yeah, there's always that. I mean, like, all that spy stuff works well. You're just really eating into my archetype (laughs) for my background, so... (laughs) Maybe don't do that. Was it, was it Cinderella? Yes. Talking mice? Yes. <laughs> they were all druids. All right. We also have Bard in here, right? Yeah. We want to get more mileage out of the charisma. As written, Bardic inspiration can be used in beast form. Seems reasonable. I have seen animals dance in a way that inspired me to great success. That is correct. Um, I just like the idea of meowing and everyone else feels heartened. Oh, yeah. It's like meow the jewels. <laughs> best hip-hop album of the decades amazing you get more expertise jack of all trades and three more skills and remember that you're gonna have a ton of skills you keep all of the skill proficiencies when you're in beast form now at third level you get cutting words which is great when you're in human form as like this verbal jujitsu right like if you are talking to someone and they are inciting to see if your deception is is a lie you can cutting words and you know reduce their insight check mm-hmm or, you know, if they're making a, a history check. I don't know. Have I have I heard of you? I, ooh, I really don't want them to have heard of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, rules is written. It can be used in beast form because it doesn't say anything about needing to, like, speak a common language or anything like that. Yeah, which is weird. But, you know, those meows, they really cut you deep. Yeah, yeah. 
So like any moon druid at low levels, you're going to be great in combat. Although that really tapers off at higher levels because your beast forms just really don't keep up right. like other PCs. Yep. In social situations, druids get enhance ability, which means you can cast it on yourself and give yourself advantage with Eagle Splendor on all your charisma skills or Owl's Wisdom for all your wisdom skills. Mm-hmm. And if you actually play as a half-elf, you can start with eight skills and then end up with 12 of them and four expertises, all of which apply in beast form. It seems reasonable. Yeah. And then you're also very difficult to decipher because cutting words will be distracting your enemies from their insight or knowledge checks to figure out what you're doing or who you are. I think with high charisma and then advantage and cutting words, this is actually sort of one of the best social party faces or diplomats that we've ever built. Yeah, and it didn't really even need Druid. <laughs> <laughs> but you can do all of it in animal form. Right, right. <laughs> so why does your character do all of that in animal form, Ishan? Well, of course, they began life on the street as an urchin. Uh-huh. A rogue, if you will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and realized that, you know, sometimes the best way to get along in life is to convince people to share their food with you rather than necessarily stealing it. Oh, okay. But, you know... You swindle the wrong person one time, and you really got to get out of town. And sometimes, if you live in, say, Greyhawk, when you leave town, there isn't another town nearby. Right. There's just miles and miles of wilderness. That's right. And so you got to live off the land. And that sucks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Unless... You're, you're an animal. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Unless you can figure out a way to adapt to your new environment and maybe even become attuned to nature maybe convince a friendly passerby to sort of take you under their wing and if it turns out that that person happens to be a traveling druid well perhaps they teach you the ways uh okay okay maybe you find out that you want to spend most of your time as an animal because you know life as a half elf slash human wasn't that great to begin with especially as a half elf yeah yeah and greyhawk no less you've got all these skills which means you're great at athletics climbing eventually flying like it's it's great and free to be a bird you don't need any of that money you don't need to steal food you just eat other animals okay i accept who hopefully are not druids okay (laughs) (laughs) all right what about your sexy beast so he is a member of a druidic order that acts kind of like the jedi consulars did so fails miserably well okay but is good Oh, at their okay. job. Yeah, so so he uh, you know has the the general motivation of trying to protect nature as a as an entity, right? But recognizing that the greatest capacity to destroy nature is in the hands of humanoids, the order takes it upon themselves to send out emissaries that mediate and help sort of moderate human activities that will destroy their forest. So, he's a druid through and through but has these added skills for dealing directly with people uh when we have to uh, talk to the normies i don't know see i think my character would probably be guilty about enjoying the human aspects more so than the natural aspects oh right that would be kind of my character's arc was, was becoming more and more aligned with society and its problems rather than nature yeah i like that yeah if we can get rid of the cars, the whales <laughs> will benefit. Yeah, part of the problem is just I hate druids, so I got to make it as non-druidly druid as possible. <laughs> All right. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. And Shane, I believe we have another review and it's your turn to read the entire thing i know i got so lucky on this one this is awesome podcast with multiple exclamation points five stars by lord hermes great source for ideas thank you lord hermes you know i love succinct short but sweet that's right it doesn't take much effort to leave a five-star review that's true have you done it yet all right so what do we have planned for next week's episode we're talking about player absences and in the character creation forge we're building the batman well that's it for episode 81 of total party thrill i hope we've lived up to our name but either way i'm shane and i'm ishan thanks for listening
and tsunami it's seven yes <laughs> that's a crazy spell it's not really a utility spell but i feel like it should be <laughs> i mean it moves things right <laughs> right <laughs> creatures up to huge i think <laughs> and a long way is does it have the largest it might have the largest area of any spell of any spell uh i think I... it's a 300 foot wall that travels 50 feet around Anyway, it travels a long way. It's yeah. a big, big area. 